John chapter 11. <clears throat> We're going to start reading from verse 41, but let me give you <clears throat> let me give you the context of what's happening here. Jesus has raised people from the dead before this event, but in each one of those raisings, <clears throat> there was only there was only two or three verses that that uh, covered the raising of the dead, and here we have an entire chapter on the raising of Lazarus from the dead, because this is one of the demonstrations of the sign of Jonah. After the unpardonable sin, after the unpardonable sin, so after the unpardonable sin, there was there was uh, this event that occurred that that uh, he said that he would never well. well there was never going to be a, a mass healing again. <clears throat> so healings weren't for the masses anymore. The healings were only for individuals based on need. He said the only sign, <clears throat> sign that he was going to do publicly after the, that was the, that they would get the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. <clears throat> this is the first of three signs of Jonah, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So since the unpardonable sin... Remember, he only taught the disciples clearly. He taught the masses only in parables since that unpardonable sin. Since that unpardonable sin, he only healed individuals based on need. He never healed masses after the unpardonable sin. What he said to Israel is, you will get now only the sign of Jonah. This is the first one of the three. The second one is going to be at his own resurrection and the third one is going to be halfway through the tribulation when the two witnesses are raised from the dead. And at the third sign of Jonah, Israel will repent and come to the Lord. So this is where we are in John chapter 11. And we'll pick it up at verse 41 to give us a little bit of the context. John 11:41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So you see, Jesus didn't normally speak in a loud voice when he made a command of something. Sometimes he would just say the word. Sometimes he would touch with a finger. But here he said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Then he even says before that, you know, I'm just doing this for the sake of the other people. And remember how we had read earlier in chapter 11, there were all these Jews that had come down from Jerusalem to Bethany to comfort Mary and her sister Martha because of the death of their brother, so that there were many witnesses. And here he cries loudly. He didn't have to. He really didn't have to. He could have just thought it with his mind. It would have happened. But here he cried loudly because he wanted them to see that this was a demonstration to the masses. In verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what what had what he had done, believed in him. So you see, many people, as a result of that event, believed in him. Many of the people who had come from Jerusalem believed in him because of the resurrection of Lazarus. There was no mistake about this. 
Remember, this, the stone had been rolled over it, and he had told them earlier, roll away the stone. The man came out, he had Lazarus come out, not free of the wrappings. He could have been free of the wrappings. When Jesus came out of the grave, he was free of the wrappings. We know that because it says the wrappings were still there, rolled up neatly and in order. But here, the wrappings are still around him because he wanted them to see that he had, did not switch these people. This was not you know, somebody else hiding in the tomb that was going to slip, slip in place and, and, and do this. He was still in his wrappings. And so they really believed this. It says in verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So some went back to the Pharisees in Jerusalem and told them about this event. In verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our nation, take away both our place and our nation. So it says the chief priests and the scribes convened a council in verse 47. So remember, this is a Sanhedrin. This is the meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is, is combined of two-thirds Sadducees, one-third Pharisees. The Sadducees are the ones that make up the priestly class, the, the uh, descendants of Levite, the ones who are priests are actually not just descendants of Levite, but specifically descendants of, Mo, uh, of, of, a, of Aaron. Aaron was part of the tribe of Levi. That particular part, that descendancy made up the, the priests. The Levites were the ones who could go and help in the temple. That's what made up this, this Sadducee part. And remember, they are the ones that ran the temple compound. The, they were the, the ones of descendancy. And then one-third of the council were Pharisees. Pharisees were not those of descendancy, but Pharisees believed that through intellectual pursuit and scholarly pursuit, you could come into an understanding of these things, and that made you able to teach. So the Pharisees were the more scholarly of the group, the Sadducees were those of descendancy, and the Sanhedrin was composed of two-thirds Sadducees. And they convened the council and they said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. So this is really telling. They said, what are we doing? So in other words, we've got to have a response to this thing. We really have to have a response to what, what, what's happened here. What are we doing now? Then they say, for this man is performing many signs. They are past the point of denying his signs. They are past the point of making inquiry to analyze, did this sign really take place? They're past the point of accusing him of doing these things based on the leader of all the demons, Beelzebul. They're past all that. They are now confessing, for this man is performing many signs. So now you have the Sanhedrin finally confessing outright, this man is performing many signs. So the Sanhedrin is not trying to explain this away anymore. You can't explain this one away. Jesus set it up so vividly. He made sure that, that Lazarus was dead four days before He called him forth. So they couldn't use this thing that the Spirit hovers over for three days and might resuscitate a man. Jesus set this up perfectly so that now even the Sanhedrin, which hates this, 
has to confess, this man is performing many signs, and not even confessing that, that just this one sign has been conducted, but he's performing many signs. Let's, let's give it up, guys. I mean, we, you know, between us, with the closed doors and this Sanhedrin, just between us, you know, he's really doing it. Lots of signs here. What are we going to do about this now? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, then he says there's three things. All men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So their problem with this is, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. So they were really worried about this. All men will believe in him, and if everyone believes in him, they knew what the outcome was, because he refused to follow the Mishnaic law, the law in the Talmud, the writings of men. He fulfilled perfectly the 613 commandments of Moses. But he, he refused to follow the Mishnaic law, which they were teachers of. And remember, around each of the laws of Moses, there were tens or hundreds, or in the case of the Sabbath, over a thousand Mishnaic laws that surrounded that. And he refused to walk in those. He said, your teachings of men have made the word of God of no effect. He says, if we let him go on, they said, if we let him go on like this, all men would believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place. I mean, we got a pretty good racket going here. We're the Sanhedrin. You know, we get, and, 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 and the, uh, it, it's the Sadducees that control the temple compound. Remember, they called it the Bazaar of Annas. The, the high priest Annas. So they called it the Bazaar of Annas because Annas and his sons and his sons-in-laws and his family controlled the temple compound. So if you went to bring an offering, you had to buy from him. They would often deem your offering being unclean and you'd have to buy it from them at a real markup. And then they would take your offering and recycle it and sell it to somebody else at a high markup. It was the Bazaar of Annas. Twice Jesus drove them out from there. Twice he did. Drove them out. But they controlled this. It was a big money-making operation. Really was. And, and he says, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why our nation? Because they knew the implication of all of this is that Jesus, if he's the Messiah, he's going to be king. And if they start proclaiming him king, because there's a king, Caesar's a king, <clears throat> that the Romans are going to come and take away their nation. So they're concerned about both their place and they're concerned about their nation. And you see this, this mark of jealousy, and we really have to be conscious of this. Let me give you an example. Say you have a Bible study. Say you're conducting a Bible study and it's going really well for, say, eight months. And then another Bible study starts a few doors down from, from your room. And that Bible study, everybody starts going to that Bible study. Aren't you going to feel a little bit concerned? Hey, you know, I've, I've been, been doing this for eight months. And that Johnny-come-lately comes and all the people that I've been working with and discipling are going over there. <coughs> Might you feel a little bit of that? I mean, just a little bit? And this is what bothers churches sometimes. That, hey, there's, there's uh, this church down the road is just growing and growing. And... Uh, People are leaving this fellowship and going to that fellowship. I mean, it, it, there's this concern here. So, 
We as believers get this too. And this is why when I see new campus groups start on campus, I'm like, yes, bring it on. Bring it on. And I'll introduce that new campus group. I want to meet the people and, and see, learn something about their doctrine and, and their theology. And if they're all right, I will introduce that leadership to all the other campus ministers. And I'll send out an email. Let me introduce to you so-and-so. They're going to be working they're with such-and-such such a group. They're going to be working the campus. And I will remind them that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. We need more laborers, Jesus said. It's not like, hey, this is our campus. Let us do it. No, we need more laborers. There's obviously a few unsaved on the Rice campus, right? Are there a few unsaved at the University of Houston? So there's more room for more laborers there. There's room for more laborers. Just bring them on in. Bring them on in. And if they are doing a better job than I am or than we are, in reaching young people, praise God. God bless them. And so what I want to do is I want to partner with them. Lord, what are they doing right? And so I'll bring these guys in my office and say, tell me about your program. How do you do this? Think I can help you out here? What can I do to help you? Just bring it on. Bring them in. Because there is this type of jealousy well within the body of Christ. It happens all the time. But just remember, we are working for the same Lord, and, and this, show me how you do it. Maybe I'll go to your group too. You know, show me how you're doing this. Maybe we can partner. And so that's their worry, that they're going to lose their nation. It says in verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So how could Caiaphas be high priest? Because we read in the scriptures that Annas was high priest, and here it says Caiaphas was high priest. Actually, there were essentially two high priests that year. Now, how could that be? Not just that, that, that particular year where this thing is being written. Because Annas was the high priest. He was appointed by Israel, and the high priest stays the high priest until he dies. Remember, there's a commandment in, in the Old Testament that when you flee to the city of refuge, the person who's fled to the city of refuge has to stay there until the death of the high priest. Well, if the high priest is replaced every year, why do, why do you have to say until the death of the high priest? Because the Romans didn't like Annas. And so they took him out and they appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be high priest. So you had the one that was appointed by Israel and the one that was functionally high priest because he had been installed there by the Romans. And that's why we read about two high priests during this time period. Because one was appointed by Israel, one was appointed by Romans, both of them being Jewish of the priestly class. And, and we see accounts of both of them uh, uh, and interactions of both of them in, in the Gospels. So, so it says uh, in, in verse, verse 40, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient that expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So 
from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Huh? I mean, the man just prophesied that it's expedient for one man to die for the nation. And not just this nation, but for the children of God scattered abroad everywhere. The Gentiles, he's going to bring them in. He prophesied. And the outcome of the prophecy is, let's kill the guy. No, they interpreted this very differently. So Caiaphas stands up, and being high priest that year, he prophesied. And you say, oh, if he prophesied, he must really know God and be really spiritual. No! He prophesied because of his installment as high priest. Because of his position as high priest, God spoke through him. And he says to the Sanhedrin, you know nothing at all. Now imagine a group of professors. You've got 70 professors, and then you get, say, the president of the university come, and the first thing he does is he stands up and he says, you know nothing at all. I'm telling you, that is the way to have just total resistance from everybody who's, who, who's in the room. All right? You, you just set them all on edge to accuse them of knowing nothing at all. Then he says, nor do you take into account that it is expedient, it is necessary for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So one man needs to die on behalf of the whole nation or else the whole nation is going to perish. The way they understood this is, you've got to kill Jesus. They understood this prophecy. Caiaphas himself didn't even know the proper interpretation of the prophecy. They thought that, yeah, we've got to kill this guy, or else the, na- the Romans are going to come in and kill the whole nation, because there's going to be, they're going to start proclaiming another king. You see what I mean? So they took it very differently. But John then, parenthetically, tells us what this meant. Because remember, John is writing this Gospel many years later. And he's giving us the interpretation, the right interpretation, of that prophecy. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. So, in other words, this wasn't his own mind speaking. He was, he was being used as God as a vessel for prophecy. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John puts this in the context. Here is the right interpretation of the prophecy that Jesus is going to die for all people. He's going to die not just for this nation, but for everyone. All of us. He's going to die for. But they interpreted it differently so that in verse 53, so that from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Because it was expedient that this one man die, or else our whole nation is going to die. And it says in verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So it tells us, as a result of this, as a result of the first demonstration of the resurrection, this sign of Jonah, that there was such a reaction from the leadership among the Jews that he never walked publicly among them again until we see in the last week, that Passion Week, when he is forced to walk among them. 
but he never chose to walk among them publicly because they sought his utter destruction. And they felt, they felt that they were doing a service to God by killing him. That's what they, they thought. They thought that, that, that uh, he was, they were going to be doing themselves, doing a service to God. And this is, this is one of the prophecies that uh, Jesus spoke about concerning the disciples. If you look in John chapter 16, verse 2, John 16, verse 2, it says, They will make you, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's John 16, verse 2. Everyone who kills you thinks that he's going to be offering service to God. This is what they thought in killing Jesus, that they were offering a service to God. Okay, let's, let's turn to uh, the next portion. So we're going through the chronological life of Jesus. So the next portion is Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. This is the next portion in the chronological sequence of Jesus' life. Remember, only the, the first three Gospels do not follow chronology. They never make any testament to follow to toward chronology. Only the Gospel of Luke follows toward chronology, follows the pattern of chronology, and then we take the other Gospels and fill it in into this outline of Luke. So now in Luke chapter 11, where we pick up Jesus' life now is he was in Ephraim, now he's on his way back to Jerusalem for this final week of his life. But remember, half of the Gospel is the last week of Jesus' life. So even though we've been at this for quite some time, Still, we got half of his life, half of the gospel, but it's only one week of his life. But on his way back to Jerusalem, it says, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village. Ten leprous men stood at a distance and met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they were going, and they were cleansed. Now, uh, As they were going, they were cleansed. Okay, so now the next thing that occurs where the Gospels pick it up is we see these ten lepers getting cleansed. Remember, there's there's Leviticus uh, 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 13 and 14 or 14 and 15. There's two chapters in Leviticus that cover what you do with a Jewish leper. Never had a Jewish leper in all of Israel's history ever been healed. Never until the Messiah came, and because none had ever been healed. Miriam had been healed, but that was after the law was complete. That was before the law was complete. Since the law was complete, never had a Jewish leper been healed. Miriam turned into a leper because she opposed Moses. That was prior to the law's completion. God then healed her at, at, at the prayer of Moses. Naaman the prophet, Naaman the Syrian, not a prophet, Naaman the Syrian was healed of leprosy, but he was not a Jew. Never had a Jew been healed of, of leprosy until the law was complete. And that's why the Pharisees taught, and you can still read the readings today, the writings today, that only Messiah would be able to heal a Jewish leper. And what did Jesus first do? One of the first acts of his ministry that caused the, 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 uh, the inspection of him was he healed a Jewish leper. And what did he do? He said, now go back and show yourself to the, yourself to the priest. Because a Jewish leper is not deemed clean until he goes through those two chapters in Leviticus, the protocol. You can't be declared clean until you go through the protocol. And the protocol is, there's a protocol for being deemed unclean. 
The protocol for de- being deemed clean is you have to make offerings, offerings on, on behalf of the leper. And the first thing you do is you have to establish that, yes, they were a leper. The next thing you do is you establish, okay, how did their cleansing take place? And the third thing that you establish is, is that indeed the cleansing has taken place. So you have to establish that it is, it, it, you were a leper, you were healed, and then how did this occur? And there are offerings that are made up at each of these phases. And so what happened the first time Jesus healed them? It caused the inspection of Jesus. There was this analysis. They sent out prophet, uh, uh, Pharisees to find out, was this person really a leper? Was he healed? If so, who healed them? Because this is indication of the Messiah. That's what started all of this. So what does Jesus do? Here the Sanhedrin has just declared, we've got to kill this guy. And what does Jesus do? He heals not one, but he heals ten. Ten. He sends to the priests. They're going to have ten. Count them. Ten. Remember, in all of Israel's history, since the law was complete, never was there a single one until that first one that Jesus healed. And it's a big job to declare a leper, a leper cleansed. It's a period of weeks over which you have to do this. You have to do something every day. Ten of them. This is going to keep the priests really busy now. And at each instance, they're going to proclaim, how were you healed? The man named Jesus spoke it. How's this for a testimony to the Sanhedrin of exactly what, what, what was going on? He sends them back to the priests who run the Sanhedrin. At each point, they have to offer up a bird. For ten different people, for a period of weeks, How's that for a divine sense of humor? There you go. You want a testimony? Here's the testimony. This is what he did. He sent the ten back, and they took this witness back. He sends them back, and it says one of the ten was a Samaritan. Remember, Samaritans were, were sort of uh, uh, half-Jews, and they, they were mixed up both, both physically, both, both by descendancy, and they were also mixed up by, by, by how they practiced their faith. But this particular Samaritan followed the practices of the Jewish kingdom. It says, as he entered the village, in verse 12, ten leprous men stood at a distance and met him. Why did they stand at a distance? Because the law said that you could not get close to a leper. Now, Jesus touched the leper formally, but boom, he was clean, so he wasn't touching a leper. But they stood at a distance knowing that they weren't supposed to approach. And they raised their voices... Now, if they're standing two feet away, do you, have to say, do you think they have to say, Master, heal us! No. There's some distance there. There's some distance. We don't know. Maybe that's 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, or whatever that is. And they raise their voices and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Remember, this is not a healing of the masses now. This is a healing of individuals based on personal need. And they have to exercise faith. The healings before the, the, the uh, unpardonable sin, he would heal people, he just touched people and heal them. There was no demonstration of faith needed. After the, the unpardonable sin, always there had to be a demonstration of faith. Here there has to be a demonstration of faith and there has to be a personal need. And personally, they seek Jesus out, they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. 
And as they were going, they were cleansed. So he says, go show yourselves to the priests. They're still lepers. He sends them to go show themselves to the priests. And as they're going, they're cleansed. As you go, you are cleansed. That was their show of faith. That even in their leprosy, they start out going to the priests. And now, as they're going, they are cleansed. So, this is a tremendous lesson because many people will say, and I, I talk to lots of people, young people and, and you know, thinking about their lives, thinking about their careers, thinking about relationships, and, and well, if God would just show me, I'm like, God is not going to show you. You step out and do what is right. You do the right thing. The Word of God has shown us what we are to be about. And step by step, He will show you what you are supposed to do in your life. He doesn't map out for us a pattern for our lives. We do the right thing. If God would just show me, is this the person that I should marry? Okay, well, let's, let's go through this. Maybe He already has. Tell me about this person. Are they a believer? If not, He's shown you that this is not the one. If you ask them to pray with you, if all they can say is, thank you for the food, amen, then they're probably not the one. There are things that He shows you. You step out and you begin to walk in obedience to what He has for you. You walk in obedience to what He has for you. And then more is revealed. We step out in faith. We step out in faith. He doesn't cleanse the leper. And then they go and show themselves to the priest. He sends them out as lepers and on their way, they demonstrate faith by going. And then they are cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, saying, thanks, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was not was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. So we know this Samaritan followed the Jewish practices because he was going to go and show himself to the priests as he was supposed to. But he was the only one who came back. Again, there is this show to, to all of Israel in the face of this that Jesus had told not too long before this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He keeps taking those who the Jews think are dirty and disgusting and he uses them as a show of these are the people that, that, that really follow me. Let, me. let me show you a demonstration of this person. And that's why he, he, he goes on and he says, he says, uh, uh, he says this foreigner, and then we see up in verse 16, he say, it says clearly this was a Samaritan. If we choose any people group and ever think, oh, they are somehow dirtier than us, they are somehow far, far from God, and I'll tell you, every people group has areas of pride. Every people group. <clears throat> you go anywhere in the world and there are areas of pride in different people groups. If you have that attitude of pride, God is going to show you. He's going to bring one of those ones who you think is inferior and He's going to show you that they love God all the more. He demonstrates that to them very clearly. And he says that this guy turned around 
and he came back and he says, Lord, thank you for, for cleansing me. Now, Jesus, Jesus knew he, he, he healed ten. There's this mass of guys, and they're all ragged clothes and everything because they're lepers, right? We've seen p- pictures of them in movies, right? So, and, 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 and they're all mingling together. They didn't count off. One, two, three. I mean, there's ten people. You don't, but Jesus knew there were ten because he said, where's the other nine? Where's the other nine? That one came back and gave thanks. And I'll tell you, if you learn to give thanks, you will have a much happier life. It will keep you much closer to God if you learn to have thanks. That's why the New Testament is continually calling us and reminding us to give thanks. Continuing, continuing to remind us to give thanks. This is what, what uh, um, the Scriptures talk about. Um, let, me, let me show you this verse in Ephesians chapter 5. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Within the whole context of giving thanks. Ephesians 5, 17. So then, <clears throat> do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So look, look at what he's saying. He's very specifically saying, this is the will of the Lord. So in case you're wondering, what's God's will for me? Right here. How much more explicit would you like him to be? This is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. Alright, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So certainly, in Israel, people drank wine. The Last Supper, they drank wine. You say, you, that had to be grape juice. There is a word in Greek for grape juice. That's not the word they use. Alright? So, in your desire to say that there was never wine, being, that Jesus never partook with, with wine, we actually don't see him drinking it, but remember, he made a bunch of wine at the, at, at the wedding feast and had it served to other people. And, and uh, so, so, if you think that Jesus never could have really done this, he really made grape juice, then why does the scripture say wine rather than grape juice? So, in your desire to get Jesus to conform to the way you want Him to conform, you will change the Word of God. That doesn't sound very good, does it? He says, don't get drunk with wine. So the prohibition, the prohibition was on getting drunk with wine. They were not to get drunk with wine. It's the drunkenness that's a bad thing. Now, I am not, I'm not you, you know, promoting the drinking of alcohol. Not at all. And in fact, for myself... I refrain. I don't drink alcohol. But that is a personal choice. I'm not going to put upon you anything that's not in the Scripture. I have made a personal choice because I wanted demonstration to my children. To my children. So long before I ever had children, I wanted a demonstration to them in the future that I would not partake of this and I knew it was offensive to some people so I didn't want to partake with it and I wanted to demonstrate this practice to my children. But that has nothing to do with you. If I push it upon you, that's legalism. I can put whatever I, whatever I want upon myself. That's not legalism. That's just putting it upon myself. So, he says, don't get drunk with wine. In verse 19, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So, he says, speak scriptures to people. Speak to them in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. This is the way they communicated the scriptures. Remember, they didn't have the written text like we do. 
they had scrolls of texts, big, big things. I mean, you go, go, go to a synagogue today, you'll see the scrolls. I mean, it wasn't like a little iPhone you could stick in your pocket. I mean, and, and so they communicated to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And this is what he's saying. Know the Word of God and communicate that to others. Share the Word of God with others. Share passages with others. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Look what he says. Always giving thanks for all things. Always giving thanks. Lord, thank you for this old car. It's better than no car. Lord, thank you for this leaky roof. It's better than no roof. And you change the whole dynamic. You can take two people living in the same apartment, having everything the same. One is rejoicing, giving thanks, and the other is spitting and cursing and upset about everything. And the person giving thanks has a much happier life. You can take your situation and complain all the time, and you'll have a miserable life. Or you can take your situation and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I have two eyes to see. Thank you that I can take a breath of fresh air today. Some people don't, aren't able to breathe air. Lord, thank you that I can do that. Lord, some people can't see. Some people can't hear. Lord, thank you for what you have given me. You do this for a while. It changes your attitude. You'll start smiling and it changes your attitude on life. When this Samaritan came back and gave thanks, he says, you're going you're to have a good time. Go ahead, stand up, show yourself to the priest. I mean, that's great. Learn to give thanks. Learn to give thanks for what you have. You don't like your job? Lord, say, Lord, thank you, I have a job. Thank you, I get paid. I mean, a lot of people wish they had any sort of work. There are some countries where 50% of the people are out of work. And he says in verse 21, And be subject one to another in the fear of the Lord. Did you know that, that, that between verse 21 and 22 where we put, a natural, we put a break, we might put a subheading, marriage, you know, teachings on marriage. There, is, there was never that subheading in the scriptures between 21 and 22. There was never that paragraph distinction. They didn't write like that. Be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Isn't it interesting that people will focus in on that wives being subject to your own husbands and forget the verse above it that says, be subject to one another, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. How there's a mutual subjection, one to another, even in the marriage. We always like to exclude that because of where they decided to insert that paragraph change. That paragraph change is never there. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word for the graciousness of Your Word. Father, I thank You for the demonstration of the resurrection of Lazarus. And Father, I pray that You'd keep these young people from ever feeling this, this, this competition in ministry. But they can bless those others, realizing that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Father, I pray that You'd so take their lives and give them lives of, of being able to give thanks in all situations, being able to give thanks, that it would start to turn 
negative attitudes that they might have picked up and they could learn to give thanks. And through that, that you would cause them to come closer to Jesus. Lord, thank you for the teachings you give us. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the demonstration of your power over and over again. Lord, we thank you. And Father, I commit this time to you in the name of Jesus.